Matt Dwyer here, and I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. If you wish to become a bigger part of the world of Conversations with Dwyer, go to themattdwyer.com slash shop and purchase a T-shirt or a phone case with the Conversations with Dwyer logo right on it. It's that little head, round head thingy. Uh, that was created by Charlene Yee. That'll help support the podcast and spread the word. Also, you could become a Patreon subscriber. You could also find that link at thematwire.com. For $5 a month, you get extended interviews, video versions of the interviews, you get bonus episodes, all kinds of extra content, sometimes blogs. And there's different tiers, but the $5 one definitely is, I think, affordable for everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Please support the podcast. And now let's listen to this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Plant Thief. It is from the album Actually You Can, and it is by Deerhoof. And my guest today is the fabulous drummer Greg Saunier from Deerhoof, obviously. And that album, Actually You Can, will be out on Joyful Noise Records October 22nd, 2021, and if you go to the link in my show notes and purchase a hard copy of that, be it record or cassette, they will ship those out November 19th, 2021, which is my birthday, so I might buy one real soon just in hopes that it shows up on my birthday and I can pretend I bought myself a birthday present, which when I used to drink, I would often uh, buy things on eBay, drunk, and forget and then they would show up in the mail, and I'd be like, oh, I got myself a present. <laughs> I would literally, I got movies that way. I totally forgot that I would buy them when drunk at home. And I once bought, like, the John Wayne version of True Grit, which I really don't want. And I find John Wayne horrible. But I do like some John Wayne movies. And it was a big thing in my household as a kid. I really enjoyed, you know, my dad watched a lot of Westerns, so there's a nostalgic to it. And the movie's not that bad, but John Wayne... Piece of shit. Real horrible human being. <laughs> Ratting out his friends during the McCarthy hearings. That's who John Wayne is. That's who the great American is. That great, loyal American ratted out his fucking friends. So, fuck John Wayne. Um, in the, Just so you know, in the show notes are all things uh, Deerhoof and Greg Sonier. He's got a side project, which we talk about a little bit in the show. So, those, the link to that is also in the... Uh, show notes so you can check that out please purchase the music um that's very important and also the deerhoof the deerhoof deerhoof has a rec a video coming out which came out yesterday the day that this show was released the day before so that is also the video is for the song scarcity is manufactured i've seen it it's really great so you could check out that video too that's also in the show notes and uh just as a side thing if uh, you like Deerhoof, uh, John, the guitarist from Deerhoof, also has been on the podcast. So you can go to themattdwyer.com slash episodes. You could scroll through. You could find that episode, and you could listen to me talk to Deerhoof twice. Who knows? Maybe I'll have the other guests on or band members on as guests soon. I've also had Lou Barlow, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips. I've had a lot of guests. I'm nearing 300 episodes. So check out some. If you're a first-time listener, go back. Listen to some of the old episodes. I think there will be a lot of artists that you like if you're a first-time listener. Also, if you're looking for a website 
and you want to go to themattdwyer.com, that's my website. That was done by my partner, Kelly R. Dwyer, and you can go to kellyrdwyer.com if you're looking for a website. She's done the website for the infamous podcast, My Favorite Murder. She also does the company that hosts that podcast. Uh, I think it's called Exactly Right. Uh, she does their website, and she does the website for Allie Ward, who hosts Ologies and their websites, and she does my website. So please, uh, if you need a website, go to kellyrdwire.com and get a website. Get she, You could email her and talk about pricing and all that stuff. Get a website. Even if you don't need one, get a website. Uh, did I mention that uh, in the show notes, linked Bandcamp to the so you can buy this album? Because I'm going to buy it, because I like records. And I have a record problem. If they had 12-step programs for records, I probably would join. Because it's, it's, there was a period I was working and I was making a lot of money that I was buying more records than I could listen to. Which is good, because then when you're not working and you don't have money, you have a lot of records to listen to. So it's almost like you still have new records. I got all the uh, addiction angles worked out. If I'm blackout drunk and I buy things, it's a gift to myself. And if I'm uh, compulsively being capitalistic and purchasing records, uh, they're new if you buy too many to listen to. I'm a great self-enabler. And if you become my friend, I can enable you and your addictions. Though I don't think buying records is actually a capitalistic effort or purchasing music um, because it's supporting art and it's supporting artists. And in an era where the labels and streaming not all labels. There's some good labels. I don't mean that. But in an era where streaming really Fs them in the ear hole, um, it's important to purchase T-shirts and albums and cassettes and CDs. I kind of I'm going to start buying CDs again. I think that's what that's my. I'm going to go start buying used CDs. Anyway, I think I've covered all things. Oh, I know this is very important. Um, when Greg and I recorded this we did it over zoom and he had a bad connection so he cuts out a lot i edited the shit out of this so that that those would not be there so you didn't have to hear there's a couple but just so you know if there's a little bit of a jump in conversation it's because we lost contact for a brief moment and i had to clean it up uh, I, I think it's overall it's uh, it's a gr- it is a great conversation and he's a fascinating dude as uh, as John said about him, he's loquacious. I looked it up. It's a good word. <laughs> anyway, so just so you know, if there's little time jumps in the conversation and something, you know, I think it's still fluid, and un- so that's not a huge issue. But, you know, we live in a world where uh, we have to communicate through Zoom. So that being said, and now that you know all these things, please enjoy my conversation with Greg Sunier from Deerhoof. Like, I get neurotic, and, like, I toil over everything, and if I'm fucking up or if I'm not smart enough. Right. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, I know what I'm doing, and I'm confident in my skills, but once I start, I don't know, you know, there's the fucking, the, the voices start coming in, and I, I want those, I want those out. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you're doing a live podcast. Uh, you kind of have to eliminate them instantly. As long as you're not doing a podcast, you can give yourself. Uh, I read it was ninety seconds. You can give yourself ninety seconds for whatever, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> 
neuron-related phenomenon or event occurs uh, in your brain, such as a, um, an anxiety-producing thought, um, if you just allow that thought um, to um, go through its own motion, it will take 90 seconds, and then you can go on about your thing as long as you don't have an additional um, anxiety-filled thought about the anxiety-filled thought. <laughs> then you got another 90 seconds on your hands. That sounds like a good Before snowball. you know it, the day's gone. Yeah. Do you meditate or anything like that to sort of keep your... How do you, how do you control your thoughts? Well, okay, I'm very, very deep into uh, an incredibly uh, arcane, um, and it's called breathing in through your nose. And I just found out um, there's an added wrinkle to it that's making it so complicated that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep it up, which is that I was actually meant to breathe out through my mouth, that that was the other half of it. I've been breathing in through my nose and then breathing back out through my nose, and I was getting all these benefits and stuff, and... Uh, and then suddenly I read that, oh, I'm supposed to be breathing out through my mouth, and now I have nothing but anxiety-filled thoughts, and then I wait for about 90 seconds, and then I breathe again and again. <laughs> As you can see, my meditation practice is extraordinarily well worked out. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, especially after the year we've had, it's just so, I don't know, I've been locked in a home with, I've got two kids, two dogs. Uh, I've opted to take liquor out of the equation, which... Uh, well done. That's not easy. No, not right. since I'm a, you know, of Irish descent. It's genetically in me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fighting off centuries of habit here. <laughs> exactly. You said about Carolina taking you on the road, and they were first, the first people to get behind you were the only people. Did you say? I think so. Uh, there, there was one other guy um, who played in, um, I think he was like backup guitar in Faith No More. Oh, and Mr. Bungle, the tray from Mr. Bungle. He liked us early on, too, I think. Oh, no, I think he was in the band at the first show. Maybe, maybe he didn't like us. He was in the band. I forgot. <laughs> I knew he was in there somewhere. Because, you, because Deerhoof's such a, like, I mean, there's nothing like it. Were people a little... Did they have a hard time getting on board or was there like, because it's when something's completely new, which I would say your band is, oh, thank you. people are a bit, you know, people are stupid. Let's face it. <laughs> I don't no, I didn't that. feel that way at all. Um, I felt um, quite strongly that um, what I was playing on the drums was really quite stupid. And I was always... Uh, <coughs> really pleasantly surprised that um, that anyone seemed to uh, hear something in it at all and uh, you know if if uh, <laughs> I think there were maybe three people at our first show not counting the three people in the band two were the um, so so two people quit this other band that we had, this grunge band. And then so the other two of us continued on as a duo um, or with it. that one time we had Trey as a guest. And, um, <laughs> but <laughs> the other two people from this band came to our first show. 
and they were smiling and that really surprised me because I thought they would you know maybe be sour about it or you know think it was annoying that that we'd um, you know created this other thing outside the band but they thought it was pretty funny and I think there was another person there maybe doing sound or something um, it was more than I expected I expected zero and when and so for our second show I think I expected three but it was like nine, you know? And um, <laughs> and I expected people to leave the room, but they stayed and they clapped, you know, stuff like that. I think that Deerhoof has always exceeded my plan or my expectation of like <laughs> how, <coughs> how understood it is. I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like I, you know, to, to, to not be so flip about it, I don't really understand our music that well. And I spend a lot of time on it. <laughs> like I've devoted many years of my life to it. And it still confuses me a bit, like quite what it is, what we're doing. And it, it really, it's surprising and gratifying that to like... Um, under, like sometimes we'll play a new city for the very first time some place in the world that we've never been start the first song people in the audience none of whom I've ever met in my life singing along and I mean I'm thinking to myself well, I remember making up that melody sort of half asleep, you know, a few months ago. You know, I was like lying in bed and I wrote something in a little piece of notebook paper or something. And then here's a bunch of total strangers singing it back to me. And I'm thinking, I cannot believe how well this landed, you know. I can't believe that this lodged itself from my unconscious completely by accident into someone else's unconscious to the point where they know the song by heart and they're singing it and uh, it's been kind of like that for however many you know 27 years or something did you imagine 27 years when you <laughs> well, that's the other part and that was going to take us you know somewhere somewhere between one and two weeks um, I thought would be that we're finished you know um, but there was more demand and uh, did it backed by popular demand Deerhoof still going did it grow quickly because you said first show three second show nine was the third no, show 18 no it grew very gradually um <laughs> If you would like to, uh, my recorder just fell. <laughs> if we would like to take, for example, a fiduciary perspective on this question, which I would, I would say that the point at which Deerhoof crossed over from being a thing that lost money on every single thing it attempted into something that did not lose money on every single thing it attempted. That process, that transition occurred eight years after our first show. Wow. That's crazy. Are you calling me crazy? No. Me, who breathes in through my nose, who lets my anxieties last for 90 seconds in my brain. You're calling me crazy. 
<laughs> I have no one to call people crazy, sir. <laughs> Unless I see something of myself in, in, in you. What, is it, uh, it's the hair. I think it's the hair. Okay. Maybe it's the Irish descent. You know, the thing about the, the, thing about the, uh, the ancestry there that I wanted to say, epigenetics. Heard of it? Epigenetics. No. Here's the thing. <laughs> when domestic pigs are let back into the wild, in two generations, they will grow their horn back. Wow. Two generations. Horn, the horns come back on their snout. If they're put back on the farm, two generations, the horns will go away. That's what it is. Two generations. You have kids? I do. They, they will struggle with alcohol, but if, they, if you don't drink and they don't drink, then their kids won't, won't have that temptation um, that uh, currently is uh, bringing the downfall of human society. It would take two generations of just laying off of it, then the human race would be fine. Racism springs to mind. If we could just hold off two generations... We could then that 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 second generation would not have any more reason to say, well, it's just human nature, you know. It would. It isn't human nature. It's just a bad habit, and it takes two, two generations to get rid of. It's wild. I have to look into this. Epigenetics, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any bad habits that you're carrying on from your prior generations or trying to shed? It's interesting, too, because you say, um, because I would say that my penchant for drinking actually comes from my German grandfather who romanticized it greatly. And right. He was a tavern owner and would give me beer as a <laughs> I mean, kid. There you go. And these were things that I just like. I associated. I associate. There's a nostalgic to it. There's a romance to it, and it's like all these things. And I, part of the big reasons I quit is because I don't want my kids to think of it as a reward-based thing, a romanticized thing, or any of that. Because uh, I don't. Because uh, God knows I made a lot of fucking mistakes because of it. <laughs> oh man, I mean, yes, I, I appreciate you sharing that, and and uh, <laughs> I can relate. I mean, when the word tavern, you know, made it immediately touring the taverns of the world, yeah. <laughs> playing rock concerts, which I don't do anymore because. Uh, because of this molecule and um, <laughs> this molecule and uh, and uh, most governments, particularly mine, uh, inability to take it seriously um, <laughs> has prevented Deerhoof from being able to um, mount any kind of tour. Um, and that will continue until something changes, which still seems unlikely. Um, I don't see Joe Biden waking up, you know, tomorrow and being like, wait a second, pandemic. I get it. What we need to do is pay everybody to stay home for two weeks. Then it'll die out for lack of hosts and we won't have it anymore. It's like, no, we got to get everybody back to work. We got to get the kids back to school. You know, 
you know, you got to get let governors, you know, make people not wear masks and all. It's just going to, there's no reason it's going to stop or continue to vary. Anyway, my point is, <coughs> it's interesting, I think that while, during the many years, while I was, while Deerhoof was traveling these taverns, <laughs> <laughs> and I felt that I was living the good life and in a way I did romanticize it and I thought of it as luck and I thought of it it's kind of reward based in a way like oh we're playing well so more people want to hear us and therefore we get to keep going and thinking of it in this <laughs> romanticized unrealistic when you say reward-based, it almost, again, kind of has this fiduciary, it has this capitalist ring to it. It's sort of like, well, there's demand for us, so we have to be the supply. People want it, so we got to give it. That's why we're doing it, you know? There was this myth that I feel like I was telling myself for many years about why we're continuing. Now that we are not touring the taverns of the world, <laughs> I realized I was romanticizing it because it was it was more than a reward and it was more than luck and it was more than skill and it was um, more than some some random um, fluke you know that just sort of entered my life story. It uh, now that now that it's not there, I see that it, <laughs> uh, to a great extent, was sustaining my health, mental and physical, <clears throat> um, and that it was to say even it was sustaining my health isn't even quite accurate. It's more like it was my health. It was it was was breathing or moving or lifting or smashing things or you know how I was smiling, how I was interacting with people, how I was being creative, how I was meeting strangers. Um, and uh, so yes, I mean, um, this time without touring, which came suddenly when we had many months of tour booked and planned that all had to be canceled last year. Um, yeah, just I think beginning to appreciate the value that it really had and trying to find ways to, you know, alternate ways to um, to have all of those uh, life benefits, like feeling like you're alive. You know, I had to find other ways to feel like I'm alive and, and other ways to be creative and, and um, other ways to exercise or breathe or meet people or have feel adventurous or, you know, any of the things that were almost side effects, you know. They seemed like side effects during the tours, but then when it's gone, it's like, wait, that's the side effect. That was the star of the show, you know. Yeah. What, if the, what are the things that you've been supplementing that with? <laughs> <coughs> Um, I th there was a funny thing where in, in many years of, you know, we'd be on tour for a month and then we'd be home for a couple weeks and we'd be on tour for another month. So there was this, and, and tour meant 
being at a rock show every single night because we were playing one and then watching the other bands and in the noisy environment and and um, working at the merch table, etc. Um, just having to constantly be on. Then when I would get home from tour, I'm like, you know what I don't feel like doing tonight? <laughs> Going to see my friend's band at such and such tavern. <laughs> and I would become very, I think, socially um, somewhat lazy, somewhat reticent, trying to be a people person, <laughs> which I don't think I really am naturally. It's more like tour forced me to become that more. I was always quite shy. And so I'd get home from tour and I would sort of revert to this uh, really insular, isolated kind of person. Um, work on our records a lot, you know. Um, you know, we'd always record and mix them ourselves. So I was doing that a lot, but I wasn't seeing a lot of people. <laughs> now that there's no tour, I'm realizing that doesn't fly anymore. Like I can sit at home and just mix records all day, but I start to feel like I'm not really sure I'm liking who I've become. <laughs> when I'm just, you know, and the mixing... You know, back in the back in the early days when when Rick Rubin apparently borrowed that twenty dollars, you know, we were on a cassette four track or whatever, and I was hunched over a cassette four track machine. But now it's a laptop, and who wants to be in front of a laptop all day? You know, it's like it's exactly what the 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 tech sector wants from us is just eyes glued to screens twenty four seven, and it just feels a little pathetic to to. Uh, to be such a willing, um, you know, willing victim or whatever of their manipulation. So uh, <clears throat> I think that I've tried to supplement it. Well, first of all, my girlfriend Sarah and I moved from Los Angeles to Tucson, so we've been here a year, and um, <laughs> supplemented it with trying to become more social, and we've made a lot of friends here. I'm trying to think if Kid Congo is in Phoenix or Tucson. Tucson. He's in Tucson. Uh, I haven't know? met him yet. Yeah. Sarah knows him, actually. He's, he did the podcast a few months ago. He's fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. I think we're trying to do an event together, actually, like a band that I'm playing in here with my girlfriend. We start another band. That's another thing that's happening. It's like, you know, we can't go on Deerhoof tours of medium-sized venues, you know, um, traveling to states where they, you know, don't have mask mandates or, you know, they discourage vaccine taking and stuff like that. But we can do tiny little, you know, two day tours with a local band where we play backyards or, you know, <laughs> really small <laughs> stuff or places where masks are required or something. So there we feel uh, safe, kind of in our little bubble here. Um, so I think we have this band is called Lucky Baby Daddy uh, it's my girlfriend's um, songs um, and I'm playing guitar in that and uh, I think we maybe do have an event coming up with uh, Kid Congo have you guys recorded? <laughs> we we recorded uh, a couple songs on a live video um, that's up on the Lucky Baby Daddy uh, Instagram page. And that was, had you two planned on doing anything before, or was that just sort of like we're stuck in this thing, so we might as well just do something? 
she'd been writing music on her own um, since since I met her. I met her at a, uh, we were both living in Los Angeles, and I met her at a Chris Cohen show. Chris Cohen is a, <laughs> and a ex member of Deerhoof. Um, he's someone who, who played in Deerhoof from 2002 or three till about 2007. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> uh, one day he, uh, we were on tour. We were in the minivan that we had rented for this tour. And uh, Chris was like, hey, you want to hear this stuff that I've been recording? I'm like, of course. And we all want to hear it, you know. And then he played like these songs that were like so finished. He played all the instruments and he was singing. I was like, thank God Deerhoof's next album is going to be this good. You know what I mean? The, the, the all, he's already done all the work. This is incredible. Just press send, you know, press post, whatever it was, you know, 2006 or seven. Um, and just like, man, we're done. This is a masterpiece. And then he was kind of like, yeah, um, actually, I don't want this to be a Deerhoof record. And then, you know, pr pretty soon he was like, he quit. Um, you know, he, he did something called The Curtains, and then he was doing something called Crypticize, and then, then he just called it Chris Cohen. He's put out, I think, three records. I think that Chris Cohen is the best, uh, I mean, for my taste, he's the, the best thing going currently, you know, the best... You know, just my favorite music. Um, and so I went to see him play, and um, that's where I met Sarah. She was there at the show, too. And, um, and so she was just barely starting to write songs. You know, really rudimentary skill on the guitar, knew a few chords. Um, not much experience singing. She'd, had, she'd done some performances with doing poetry reading and comedy and stuff, but um, no musical performances. And, uh, and then she just, uh, yeah, kind of during pandemic, I mean, she got an app on her phone. Um, I think it was called um, DAW, D-A-W. <laughs> Maybe that's what actually fell off your desk there. I mean, so your DAW, you know, your digital audio workstation. Um, and uh, she just started recording stuff on her own and she would layer, you know, her a bunch of voices and stuff. So there is Lucky Baby Daddy music recorded on Bandcamp and I play on some of it. It's a lot of what we were doing uh, during lockdown is I was just trying to, I didn't want to take over. You know, I, I have so many albums and so used to doing DIY, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, you never want to rob someone of that, you know, admittedly sometimes painful learning curve. <laughs> I know that of, curve well. Yeah, yeah. Just like learning, like hearing your voice back for the first time, like, ooh, that doesn't sound too good. And then figuring out how to make it sound better. Or I didn't want to sing it that way. I want to sing it this way. All the, you know... But eventually, you know, I started here and there, I would add some drums to songs and, and then I mixed it in the end, um, you know, alongside her. Um, <laughs> but at that point, <laughs> around the time that that record she was making, not a, you know, a band camper, it was cassette and digital, um, <laughs> was getting done. I think that's, maybe it was around January, February. She 
was starting to feel like, I wonder if there are people here in Tucson that I could meet, maybe some people I could play with. And she started to um, seek uh, people. And Tucson is a pretty small town, and once you meet one <laughs> of the right people, you've met the whole scene within a week or two, you know? And that's how it felt. It was like a waterfall. It was like a barrage, you know? We went from only knowing each other. We met, we didn't know anybody when we moved here last August. And uh, to just feeling like we knew the whole town uh, almost overnight. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's been, in a way, that's been the supplement for touring. What made you choose Tucson? Was it just a random, because it's just crazy to because I mean, I think about moving all the time. Like I live in- Where are you? We're outside Los Angeles. Yeah, I, okay. I lived in LA for- fucking ever and but like I, we've been in a town outside of it for four years and but i just i get antsy I, if i was single i would just be like all right fuck it i'm going to this city and i would be fine with it as long as it's yeah, a city with exactly. culture i mean we <laughs> when lockdown was threatening and it was about to happen I was like Sarah I'm moving in with you <laughs> or I'm not going to see you for a couple of years so I'm moving in so I moved into her room she had two roommates another couple so there were two couples now in this rather small house in Los Angeles um, and not just two couples in a small house but as we all know two couples home at all times. And I'm a musician doing mixing. I, I found this, this sort of water heater uh, closet in the back of the house that I could just barely squeeze into that I was like, okay, this is gonna be my office. And so I'd go in there and shut the door and just be mixing all day and made noise. You know, I had drums in the front room and I'd like try and wait till somebody was like gone for a walk, you know, for 30 minutes. I'm like, okay, quick, I'm gonna record something. <laughs> <laughs> in this 30 minutes, you know, before they get home from their walk. Sarah makes clothes, and, which can be, make a big mess. You know, their piece swatches material and strings all over the floor and everything. And it's like, same thing. Like, oh, they're going to be gone for an hour. Let me try and do it now. <laughs> you know, sewing <laughs> machine, you know. It's like you can't be done in an hour with a project like that. And so they would come home and just be, you know, it was like a... Um, uh, um, like a saver's thrift store blew up or something, you know, it's just like fragments of clothes just all over the place. And, and uh, Sarah started to feel a little bit like, you know what, you know, to do this all day, every day, we're taking up too much space. We're taking up too much real estate in this house. I, I think we're making them feel <laughs> overwhelmed, you know. Sarah had previously had a studio um, where she was working, but but she got rid of the studio around the time of lockdown. And then I had had a separate house where I was doing my mixing. Like I lived some in a different place, and but when I moved in with her, I was suddenly I've got roommates and I'm making noise. We need to move. Well, it took us about five minutes of, uh, you know, Zillow searches on LA. <laughs> it was way too expensive. So then we were like thinking, okay, where else could we go that's not too far away? And my parents um, live in Tucson and they, in their mid eighties, were not even leaving the front door. 
you know. And it had been months of this, of completely sedentary, no friends, no human contact with anyone but themselves. And I'm like, I feel like I, you know, maybe we should go to Tucson and keep, keep my parents company a little bit, go visit them once a week or twice a week or something, just so that they, you know, they're just so bored, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, we looked around a few places and we just realized that, you know, I don't know, Tucson, is, we, we both really loved it. And um, so, I don't know, it just worked out. We got lucky. Maybe that's where I'll go. Or maybe I'll become your neighbor. I'm just always, I, and plus it's But just you like, said if you're single, you're not single. Oh, I you mean. You got to bring the whole crew. Yeah, I mean, if I was single, I would just move all the time. I would just be like, fuck it, I'm out of here. But with kids. Yeah. But I, you know, because LA, it's expensive. And it's like, now I need more bedrooms than ever. And it's like, it's, it's fucking maddening. It's, I, my rent is like some people's monthly income. And my monthly exactly. income is sometimes just my rent so it's like <laughs> you got it <laughs> but it's 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 i think it's gotten to the point where i i was stressed out about it for so long that i've just gone zen about it where i'm like there's nothing i can fucking do i just gotta live with this and hope uh the universe drops something <laughs> magical in my lap <laughs> yeah i mean if you're able to laugh that's something grateful for, even though it can feel excruciatingly um, stressful. Um, <laughs> Tucson, you know, way cheaper than LA, but but rising. Yeah. I, it, it turned out, after all, we weren't the only people who moved <laughs> from LA or some other expensive, you know, boomtown to Tucson. And now Tucson's in demand. And a lot of places are. A lot of places around the country I'm finding. I'm finding that the 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 places that that are not rising in rent are places that um <laughs> are um, constantly being redestroyed by hurricanes or places where um, there's a um, or rural areas that um, that have been drafted into the army of QAnon um, those places the rent is staying low the place where you go and it's basically a COVID death sentence um, where, where no one will get vaccinated um, everybody takes their turn in the hospital slash morgue um, you go to the grocery store and no one's wearing a mask that kind of thing the rent there is still low so if yeah if you would like dying then the cost will not be great for you but if if there's if you would like to try and find a place you know where people um <laughs> don't want their neighbors to die um, in fact they may even consciously want them to stay alive <laughs> then you're gonna have to pay yeah, that's the other problem. It's like, you know, I want to be urban. I want to be in an urban... I want to be near... I want to be able to go see some music or art. Or I don't want to be, like... I don't want to be in the country, and I don't want to yeah. be a bunch of, like, QAnon people. Like, I'd lose my... I'd lose my... I see, you know, I see that shit just in my town, and I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> no, it's rural America is the is the zone. That's, that's where... That's where QAnon lives, I mean. Yeah. Why it has any following? It's rural America. Um, on a I, on a s selfish level, I want to talk to you about drumming because I mean Ooh. I'm not a drummer. I played drums in high school, and if you cool. heard, if you heard me play, you'd be like, "Yeah, it should stay in high school." That's that's keep that in the past. <laughs> <laughs> 
first time I saw you play live, uh, which I remember distinctly because it was Adam McKay's birthday party. I don't know. Yes, 40th birthday at the Echo. Which was a gazillion years ago. But I was like, I had listened to you guys. Gazillion. It was, it was 12 years 12 ago. Was. I know this because he and I <laughs> were the same age, which means we still are. And I'm 52. So that means he's 52. That means his 40th birthday was 12 years ago. And I'm your so same sweet. age as well. We're both the same age. We're all three of us. Okay, right on. But I had listened to you play, and I never, I had never seen any video or anything, and I had no fucking idea what your setup was. And it, when I saw it, it was just what your drum setup was. I was like, "Holy fuck, this guy's a genius!" Like this, you, well, you get so many different sounds out of a snare, a bass, a hi hat, and a cymbal. Is it that it? Is that it? I don't know. I switch it around sometimes, but yeah. But yeah. you don't have like a Neil Peart. Sometimes have... it's less. Sometimes it's a little more. Sometimes I got a floor tom. Um, yeah, I just set I just set up my drums in my closet here actually, and uh, I have a floor tom in there now. Uh, you're right. It's right next to my shirts that are hanging on a on, on a rack, you know, and floor tom right under. Did you? Who were some? I know you're a big Stones fan, so I'm gonna take a wild guess that Charlie Watt was a was a big fan. You're were into Charlie as a kid or no? <clears throat> Charlie Watts was the reason that I started playing the drums. Now you did you did you ever get into the? Because when I was in high school, junior high, I think I got a drum kit in eighth grade, perhaps. And it was all the drum gods were like you know Neil yeah. Pert, Bonham. Bonham actually didn't have a big kit, but, <laughs> but it was all the big. It was all that flash and even Moon, who I Keith Moon, who I love, but he was very flashy yeah. and big set. Actually, his set seemed to expand over the years. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> we had a normal one back in the early days yeah. when he was wearing a Target shirt and stuff. It was always just a regular old. Yeah, early. But then it was like yeah, the two rows of toms and the double bass drums and yeah, everything. I prefer um, early who uh, like out of like yeah. uh, when they were sort of mods. I dug that's like my favorite era of the who pre roadie pre roadie who. <laughs> I want you to get a roadie to set it all up. It's like you know whatever. Yeah, put as many drums out there as you want. <laughs> did you somebody else doing the labor? Yeah. Did you? Is that why your kit's so small too? You just like fuck this. I'm not gonna lug all this. It's in the minivan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've always felt bad for drummers after shows because I'm like, oh fuck, <laughs> like no one's helping the guy. <laughs> no, but no one's helping. <laughs> We've worked out a system. I've I've worked out a really a what I think is incredibly clever system, which is at the end of the show, I'm like, guys, I'll take the merch table shift right after the show's over. We hit the last note. I leave the stage, go straight to the merch table, and then about half an hour, 45 minutes later, magically, my drums have been packed down and put into the minivan. I'm like, wow, how did this happen? And then secretly, I'm like, I'm clever, a clever man. I was going to say, I've, I've managed to avoid carrying that bass drum another time. You know? I called you a genius, and I think I just proved it. <clears throat> well, I proved it. You called it. I proved it. I caught that after I said it, but I was going to let it slide. <laughs> what, what was it about Charlie yeah, Watts? I mean, I learned to play the drums listening to Charlie Watts. Uh, 
And uh, I don't know why. Uh, I just... Uh, what can I say? Uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I was more interested in <laughs> musical tension than musical release, maybe. Maybe is one way of thinking of it. Um, I thought that Charlie and his interaction with the other Rolling Stones built up a kind of musical tension that never, is never played exactly the same way twice. And the, the drums are, you know, kind of settled into a general rock beat, but you never really know when he might open the hi-hat a little bit, or you never know, he might do a cymbal crash at some point um, in response to something that's, that Mick Jagger has sung or, the, or some particularly um, noteworthy, um, you know, uh, accentuation or syncopation from the guitar. Uh, <laughs> it's like just this um, constantly unresolved flow um, that to me the idea of like a flashy drum solo was sort of about <laughs> like I, I never listened to Rush but they had a few hits on the radio so I knew those songs and um, everything was like perfectly satisfying there was this sense that he would play a fill and go down, you know, maybe 12 or 13 toms, you know, and, and it would be the precision of those 16th notes. It was completely mechanical. Every single hit was at exactly the same fortissimo volume. And there was no, uh, they were exactly evenly spaced. So, um, <laughs> You could not detect the slightest flaw in either the performance or the recording of, of any Rush song. And no matter how flashy the fill was or how difficult to recreate, um, every time one of those dang, you know, Spirit of the Radio or Limelight or something like that would come on, it'd be like, it just was completely, it's like you hear the, it's like being handed a solved Rubik's Cube or something. It's like, okay, congratulations. You know, <laughs> I feel nothing, you know. I'm glad you had fun solving that Rubik's Cube, but what, what's in it for me, you know? Um, I felt like I was being handed, you know, some mangled, mangled, you know, completely unsolved Rubik's Cube that, like, had a couple of the cute, the squares missing and, you know, all the stickers hadn't been put on yet or something. And uh, there was still a lot of work for the listener to do. And that that intrigued me a lot. Um, it wasn't sparkly and flashy. It was more like kind of had a lot of knots and burls and, and uh, barnacles and, and unfinished bits and stuff that needed to be filled in and blank spaces. And some parts were kind of scratched off and some parts were obscured. And um, this part, the page was ripped. And, you know, it's like you kind of had to do the work to finish it. And that, that's what really inspired me. So it's like there is always the suggestion of a finished song in there somewhere, but it's only sort of <laughs> sketched out and approximated in these, you know, in these Rolling Stones, you know, the, 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 all those famous records. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was a, 
And it does actually go back to the small drum set because it's the suggestion of more. You can you can imply a lot with just a kick drum and a snare drum. You can you can um, <laughs> imply uh, big Neil Peart fills without actually having all the toms. But you just have to sort of give a suggestion of it just enough that the listener fills in the blanks with their own imagination. This kind of thing. And that that idea always even before I was conscious of it, um, which is all moments leading up to this podcast, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> uh, I think I always had the sense that that was, that intrigued me, you know? Uh, yeah, I saw Rush when I was 13, live, and I was fucking bored out of my mind. Like, <laughs> like he did the drum solo, and I sat down, because I was like, what is the... And I've recently learned that Keith Moon refused to do drum solos, so that was yeah, yeah. one more reason. Because he was like, it's fucking boring. That was his quote. He's like, it's fucking right. boring. No one wants... And he's and I don't, like, I don't mind it if it's like Art Blakey or like a jazz dude. It's a whole different thing, because it's not, to me, it's not like a self-indulgent festival of like they changed the name of not as a drum solo but once once something's being improvised live and the aura of spontaneous creation and thinking off the top of your head and living by your wits is occurring in front of you in real time that's a completely different experience so it's it's not just that art blakey has more talent than it's the fact that that a jazz drum solo or any type of jazz solo is improvised is what gives it, again, this kind of tension, this sort of suspense. You don't know whether they're going to blow it. You know, you don't know if they're going to pull it off. Uh, and you don't know where it might go. And they don't know where it might go because the, it can change course, you know, in midstream um, at any time, depending on any factor. And that, that's exciting. Did you formally study and study jazz, or did you just sort of, it's all you? <laughs> I, I went to college studying music composition. So I was like writing, you know, like modern classical music. Uh, and so, you know, I've always uh, notated my ideas on staff paper and stuff. Um, but I wasn't studying any, um, I wasn't studying the drums. Um, I was in school band from elementary school on snare drum. Um, so, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, I was in, I was playing in the percussion section, you know, all those years, and I always really loved it. I was always really into music. I took piano lessons when I was young. Um, but after high school, I never, you know, I never took lessons on like drum set or like how to, or lessons in like rock or jazz or anything. And, and um, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty much like taught on the drum set or like if I play guitar or whatever, just, uh, yeah, just from doing it. Um, I think the biggest, the, yeah, the biggest music education thing for me was studying music composition. I mean, it's not a, uh, <laughs> a diploma that will get you any job. <laughs> I really appreciated that education because it was more like a, it was sort of like, it was like a liberal arts education. And I felt that, that like what was emphasized was critical thinking, you know, learning how to think, um, learning how to not just accept um, what's told to you on, um, you know, <laughs> the evening news and 
just um, or by a politician and uh, just accept it affirmatively and say, oh, well, then that must be the truth because somebody rich or in a position of authority just said it. So, um, you know, I'm just a jerk if I don't believe them. You know, <laughs> it's like, a, um, yeah. Uh, I think that's that's what I <clears throat> think about most when I think back to like you know if I was like <laughs> it wasn't like professional training you know I didn't go to music school and come out like able to like play standards or like get a job at a restaurant uh, but you know playing uh, music in the background or um, it was nothing like that it wasn't professional training it was like uh, it was like um, yeah the the thing that I think education would most um, wonderfully be, which is, you know, uh, examples in thought. How to pick things apart, how to deconstruct, how to recognize lies or missing information, how to see things from other perspectives. But I have to say, you know, okay, I graduated college, but that education continued. It's like, <laughs> I never felt like someone who had a travel bug. Um, and yet here I am in this band, still going. Year after year, I'm like, I can't believe Deerhoof is still going. And not only that, we get to travel to all these places, and sometimes you get a really eye-opening experience. Now, we, we don't go to France to play a show and then go see the Eiffel Tower. We don't, <laughs> there's no time to see the Eiffel Tower because then we have to drive to Lyon the next day or something, we gotta get up early. But, but we meet people at the club where we're playing that people in France don't live exactly the same way as people in the U.S. They don't think quite the same way. They don't prioritize things the same way. <laughs> they have a different opinion about health care. They have a different opinion about tech surveillance. Um, and uh, they have a different opinion about how many weeks of vacation they should get every year or how long is maternity leave or whether how many nuclear arms you need to have in your stockpile or, you know, any of this stuff. Um, and, you know, same goes for when you go to Sweden, same goes for when you go to, to Russia or when you go to Argentina or, or, you know, when you go to Japan or when you go to Thailand, you know, you're just getting, um, it's like, <laughs> I feel so lucky for the education I've gotten just from people who want to come talk to me at the merch table after I've just played the last note of our set <laughs> and I'm taking my shift at the merch table and they want to talk about the show. I mean, it's like, and it's like, I feel so grateful that total strangers all over the world have struck up conversations with me and I get, I'm curious and I get to learn about what do they think? What are they, what's their life like? What do they do for a living? You know, what, what's their hobby? What are they into? You know, what are they happy about? What are they angry about? You know, and it's like, yeah, it, just doing that. I mean, I remember, I remember when George Bush was president, just thinking, this was right around the time that Deerhoof was starting to get busy more. We were touring more. In fact, we were quitting our jobs 
um, and going on tour full time was during his presidency. And, and so more of this was happening. And I'm just starting to think like, I think I've seen more of the world than the president of the United States. I don't even think he's curious. I don't even think he cares. You know, it didn't even occur to him. He was, he went as far as Yale and like Houston. That, that's like, he's fine. You know, as long as he's at some cocktail party at either one, he's fine. And I'm thinking like, man, <laughs> there's like the rest of the human race. <laughs> you know, forget about the natural world. Just, just, you just take the human species. You know, it's like, I mean, it felt very weird to look at an elite on TV or in the newspaper or whatever um, and feel literally better educated you know just from being the drummer in like some grunge band i feel better educated than the leader of the free world you know yeah it's a very odd feeling it's funny while you were saying all that i thought of george w bush too and i was just like that motherfucker didn't leave our country until he was president and that's just (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) right i rest my case it's crazy to me and it's like if you want to be a leader i mean not i'm of course i'm assuming somebody who wants to be a leader also has ethics and uh, moral structure (laughs) no actually that 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 disqualifies you yeah (laughs) It's baffling to me that, like, I, especially now, like, everyone thinks their party is the hero party. And I'm like, are you fuckers paying any attention? Like, when they're like, the Dems are going to do it. I'm like, no, they're not. Like, pay attention. They, they're not doing it. <laughs> and, and it's not like they stopped doing it yesterday. They pretty much abandoned their, their stated mission you know, somewhere around 40 years ago. And, and uh, you can't fool people for that long with rhetoric. And so it's obvious why the other party could come in using revolutionary-sounding rhetoric and instantly appear to be more desirable than the party that's using... <laughs> anti-revolutionary rhetoric, which is the Democrat Party. Um, Let's not go too far. You guys are extremists. Can we cool it down? Um, Let's just keep things laissez-faire, you know, pretty much. um, Let's not... Let's not destroy our systems. Let's not destroy our economy. Let's not destroy our institutions. And then the Republicans come in and say, let's destroy our institutions. Let's... Um, let's pulverize um, governmental programs. Let's undermine the uh, ability of the Congress to accomplish anything. Um, (laughs) Let's use revolutionary language that makes it sound like you're going to take on the, take on Washington, you know, Um, and you're going to boss, you know, um, and so that has an appeal. Now, of course, if anybody came in with not only revolutionary language, but with a revolutionary program, <laughs> they were going to implement, and by revolutionary, I just mean stuff that the actual population needs and wants, <laughs> revolutionary, you know, um, <laughs> uh, then they would instantly win. I mean, that's why it's weird. Yeah. But that's why they can't be allowed to run. And by allowed, I mean by the underwriters of campaigns will not will not fund 
or support a campaign by somebody like Bernie Sanders because that, that would undermine their own profit margin. And that's stated explicitly. Now, of course, that's, that's the appeal of a progressive candidate, is that they would undermine um, you know, the ability of a CEO to purchase yet another yacht or something. Um, but uh, but um, yeah, that's who funds campaigns in our country. Um, and so, yeah, if you don't have support from them, you'll be destroyed. So it's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? So it kind of ends up like whoever has the more, whoever gives a better stimulation of outrage um, is very likely to be the winner. And, you know, so that explains why um, certain Republicans have been, have had so much electoral success. Um, or why certain, um, you know, commentators on certain TV networks, you know, have enjoyed so much res uh, success. It's because their simulation of outrage is uh, more convincing. The error that Bernie made is that uh, uh, identifying himself with socialism, which there's 80 years of propaganda in this country against socialism, and that he should have aligned himself with FDR, which is something more relatable. And it's like, cause, because what he was doing isn't anything outside of the early stages of, or the early form 1940s, 50s Democratic Party. Now it's like the Democratic Party. Or parties. Republican Party, for that matter. Yeah. It's not that different from Eisenhower. Yeah, correct. But it's not one word. I mean, he could have used a different word, and the the corporate world or the, the world of the ultra-wealthy would still have been opposed to his victory. Yeah, I with or without the word socialism. I'm not sure that that hurt or helped him. I don't think it was about that word. Um. I just wanted to ask you to go back to the band, though I can talk politics and these kind of things all day long. <laughs> my favorite, like, I mean, this is what my wife and I do all day. We talk about these things. Yeah, right on. And then we fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to congratulate you. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what, because you said you were surprised how long Deerhoof has been at, and I, it's like, what do you, because I, I heard an early uh, copy of the album that's coming out, and I'm like, "Oh, sweet!" Which is great, and I'm like, "And you, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, recorded it in different parts of you were in your own separate world." Yeah, we haven't seen each other for almost two years, um, so it was all by email. Which is, how was that process? Was that crazy? Was that, or is it just you know each other so well musically that it wasn't that challenging? We no longer lived in the same city since 2010, so actually we've, wow. we're pretty well practiced at remote recording, and everybody's got their little mini setup at home, you know, falling off the desk and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody can play drums, and everybody can play guitar, and everybody can sing and play bass and stuff, so... Like we were trying to make it an imaginary meetup where, where we were together. It almost feels like we were together because that's what the sound we were trying to create was the sound of us playing together. But actually, it was all recorded totally separately, overdubbed one instrument at a time, <laughs> sitting in chairs at home in front of a desk. <laughs> um, do you could you attribute anything to why you've mm. been consistently because the album's great everything I personally believe everything you guys have put out is great so I'm You're like so sweet. I 
appreciate that. But I mean, there's, you, you're all brilliant individually, and then together, it's just like, I mean, John. I mean, every one of you are. It's just like, anyway. Do you have any? I think that one reason it has it has. Um, I mean, one reason that we kept going. Obviously, it's encouraging when when there's when people like the music. So that that has helped a lot. Um, we've been really really lucky in that regard. I think we have the coolest fans, you know, the coolest listeners of any band. I think a lot of bands probably feel that way, but I definitely feel that way. I mean, when we have gone on tour and we bring openers, um, or we choose openers or whatever, and it it's often feels like we could bring an opener in any style of music. I mean, one tour we did all bluegrass bands and wow. um, another tour it was always improv act, you know, like free improv. Um, and, uh, and another time it would be like all like, um, you know, female identifying screamy punk bands. And the audience was just loved it you know every time um plays into it it's kind of like a good spiral between the band and the audience so the the audience likes being surprised and we like being surprising and i think that if i can attribute our <laughs> longevity so far to anything it's actually been from changing what we're doing and and uh feeling if we feel any pressure at all it's not to compete with past records or with any other band but to <laughs> to surprise the audience to do something that they wouldn't have expected that makes them laugh or that makes them smile um <laughs> that's the pressure that we feel and it's an incredibly it's an honor to have that as the thing that's expected of you to, is to do something unexpected. And then when we do do something unexpected and the audience responds with delight, then it's like you, it, yeah, it's a loop that, that, um, that just <laughs> stokes the fire of your like desire to be creative and to think of something even more embarrassing to do. <laughs> I mean, that's what it often is. It's like, just take bigger risks, you know? Um, I think that, you know, Deerhoof started off as a kind of like loud noise rock kind of grunge thing, um, you know, in 94. And I think that as the years have gone on, we've dared to show each other like, ah, I've got a new song that I wrote. I really don't know if it's going to work in this band. It's really not in our style. But then you play it and it's like some piano ballad or it's like some piece of classical music or it's like some, some, something really fragmentary um, <laughs> or something that has no beat to it at all or it's all acoustic or, you know, just something that does not fit into whatever we had been doing. You know? <laughs> and everybody's like, yes, we love it, you know, uh, let's do it. And, and um, that feedback loop of like um, <laughs> just taking pleasure in each other's um, surprising imagination 
Mm -hmm. I think has been the secret. You know, I think if we if we felt and the fact that we've never had a hit, so we never had a specific template to live up to and to try and repeat. Um, it's like it's been a real honor, actually, not to have a hit, because then you can keep just see what happens. <laughs> it's great, to, too. It's there's from what I hear is that there's an openness and accepting of whatever anybody brings in. You're like, yeah, we're going to make it work, which is not I mean, ever. Not only, only not not all of John's songs, but <laughs> everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Only some of John's songs. Uh, uh, John also told me that you are a big Kubrick fan, so I wanted to ask you what your favorite Kubrick movie is. Oh no! I, How do I choose a favorite? Oh man! I know that's hard. <laughs> Did was it your idea? I can't. John told me whose idea it was for the. Uh, you guys covered songs from The Shining. From The Shining. Was that you or was that somebody else? Well, I mean, it was, it felt a little obvious. I mean, I, yes, uh, <laughs> the owner of that label, um, Cyrus Lubin, he and I are both kind of Kubrick nuts. And so we would get into conversations. And one day he was like, I know what you guys should do. <laughs> you guys should cover some music from The Shining. And I think he thought we would do. Two of the the twenties songs oh, from like the, the Paul Whitman stuff. Down. But then Ed was like, "No, I want to do like the Bartok. I want to do the the classical music, the really scary stuff." You know, um, for Side B, <laughs> he went to the library and uh, just really slowly, you know, piled it up note by note on guitars, um, tried to play the orchestral piece as it's written in the score, but all on electric guitars. I added a teeny bit of drums and mixed it, and Satomi, of course, sang um, Midnight in the Stars and You. Um, but it's almost all Ed's work <laughs> uh, on that 7-inch, and I was so proud of him. It was uh, It's actually Ed's birthday today. I need to call him. Um, he just did something so extraordinary on that. And, uh, you know, it's been like ever since he did that and I realized how much work he can do, he has not been off the hook because now I realize, now I realize the, 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 the sheer labor of love intricacy that's possible to demand from this guy. <laughs> so uh, now that that's it, he's, he's um, proven his very high standard to the rest of us. And so he, he's not going to be able to go back to just sort of strumming some chords in the background anymore. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. As I, as you were, I was also thinking about the, the, Cooper question I'm like I couldn't say I don't have a favorite I have four films that I probably watch more than others but that doesn't mean right which would be Lolita Strange Love Shining and probably The Killing are probably my most visited I still haven't even seen The Killing actually I feel like I keep saving it um, yeah I probably have my four favorites as well the one that I've watched the most recently I was on a plane and watched Full Metal Jacket um, oh, that, yeah, about a month ago I was on an international flight and they had Full Metal Jacket on the, on there I'm like why do I need to see this movie again um, I've seen I know every line of this movie every line of dialogue I've thought about this movie so many times I've read so many articles and books and essays analyzing its meaning. 
and its structure and everything. What am I going to still get out of this? <laughs> I sit down and I'm watching this thing and I'm like, it's not about any of the things I thought it was about. <laughs> you know, it's uh, completely about um, the destruction of, um, you know, of femininity inside of a human being. It was like writing down ideas for like the next hour. Like I just felt that it, it, no matter where I am in life, no matter which one of his movies I'm watching and where I am in life, it seems to resonate. In, it, it's almost like whatever questions I find myself unconsciously asking myself, the things that I'm struggling with inside, I'll watch one of these movies and it's like it seems to be directly addressing because there's something very open-ended about it. It's what we were talking about with the Rolling Stones. There's this sort of half-finished Rubik's Cube. It's, a, it's not solved. You know, the, it, it's, it's an unsolved Rubik's Cube, a puzzle. And it's just unsolved enough, at least to my taste, that when I come to it, it seems to address the, the, the very things that I'm puzzling over in life at that time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and so I just feel like, you know, that, of course, is like a great goal in the arts is to create something that you can come back to again and again and that will seem to yield different results or seem to be about different things depending on who you are when you're engaging with it you know wow. well i want to i want to thank you for your time greg i really yeah it's been so fun to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your itunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with the wire at the instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening <laughs>